Hello and welcome to Just Black Talking. I am your host, Dr. Justin Black. And if I sound excited to you, it's because I am excited. This is the inaugural episode of this podcast. And I don't know what brought you here, but I'm so happy that you have come. And I hope that you will find this place enjoyable and interesting for you. This is mid-September 2020. And 2020, uh, without dispute, has been absolute utter trash from the very beginning. One of the things that has come out of this year, though, has been interest in Black America, interest in the lives of Black Americans and the perspectives. And hey, you're in luck. I'm Black. I'm American. I've got perspective. We're going to talk about so many things here that cover the gamut of interests, experiences, and perspectives, fun things, interesting things, deep things, all of it we'll cover here. All with the goal of creating a space for some conversation. Uh, and in that conversation space, maybe we learn a little bit more about ourselves and each other. So that's kind of the backdrop, some of the goal and intent of this podcast. Um, again, I'm welcoming you here. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, several of the episodes are just my um, ridiculous sounding voice. Uh, but hopefully I'm giving you information that is interesting enough to keep you engaged. We also have some excellent guests lined up, uh, and some, some really interesting topics. So, um, that said, let me talk to you a little bit about what this first topic is. Um, you know, as I mentioned, trash 2020 is upon us. Uh, it can't end soon enough. One of the limitations that we have in addition to the months of quarantining that we're still trying to fight out of is that we can't travel anywhere. Um, you know, if we go anywhere, particularly as Americans, uh, you've got to hold up and spend most of the time that you probably had, uh, quarantined at your destination. And there's a few places that are still allowing free travel, but for the most part, all of the typical places that most of us like to go for vacations and, and getaways, it's just, it's just not feasible right now, but we are able to travel in a different way. And I'm inviting you to take a trip with me today. That way is in the things that we experience on a daily basis, whether we are eating, listening to music, putting on clothing. Each of those things has a history, has a story. And many of those stories take us to faraway places. And if you just journey into those stories uh, if you find like I do, it's a way to travel in a sense. You can close your eyes and, and transport yourself to a faraway land. And so that's what we're going to do today as we talk about a very special thing, a French pastry of all things called a cannelée de Bordeaux. I'll tell you about the controversial history, kind of the unique features of this. And I think after we go through some of those things, you'll find, like I find, that this is interesting. This is something we may not have known about, maybe have seen, maybe have walked past and just didn't have any interest or, or knowledge about it. But that's what this is about. We're going to learn about things we didn't know we wanted to know about. So without further delay, let's jump into our first episode of Just Black Talking and our topic, Canelet de Bordeaux. Next. Just 
Okay, welcome back to Just Black Talking. As I mentioned, travel is restricted for the most part, and I offered to you that we have things we do several times a day from eating and drinking and listening to music that present an opportunity to us to explore mentally in our mind. You know, each one of those opportunities, each food that you eat uh, that may, you know, be from another place, that gives you an opportunity to explore the culture, the people, the histories of those faraway places. And no, it's not a, uh, it doesn't replace, it's not a substitute for feeling a Mediterranean breeze or, you know, looking at crystal blue waters or, you know, traveling ruins or whatever it is that you like to do. Uh, it's not a substitute for that, but it might give you a little bit more passion to do so once we're able to travel again and to do so with more knowledge and interest once you arrive. Uh, so again, today's topic is a Canale de Bordeaux. Uh, that is C-A-N-E-L-E. The last E has an upgoing accent called an accent aigu. I apologize in advance for my poor French pronunciation during this episode, but I'll do my best. Um, and this Canale de Bordeaux, in the title, it's telling you this is the official cake of the city of Bordeaux, France. Now, that's uh, a little interesting. It's a little curious to me, uh, but perhaps it shouldn't be. Plenty of places have official things, official state flags, colors, foods, even baked goods. Uh, I'm in Maryland, and in the state of Maryland, we have an official cake called the Smith Island cake. And that's a, a layer cake, uh, pretty much of yellow cake with chocolate icing, traditionally chocolate, in between each layer. And we're talking eight to ten, sometimes more layers. Uh, so it's visually kind of an impressive looking uh, cake, but basically it's it's yellow cake with a whole lot of chocolate icing. Uh, but, you know, this is not unique. Uh, th- there's a lane cake down in Alabama that they have. Uh, in Louisiana, you may be familiar with beignets. That's the official, uh, it's official thing for, for the state of Louisiana. And, and you know, uh, of course, if you go to New Orleans, um, go to uh, very famous places there and pick up some delicious beignets. So the concept of having an official cake of a city uh, maybe should not have surprised me as much as it did initially when I found out about that. But uh, look, it's it's a great um, little factoid. And this cannelé, uh is a special treat. And right now, who doesn't deserve a sweet little treat? So we're going to talk about this. We're going to go into a little bit of the history of this cannelé, uh, how it's made, what's kind of unique about it. And then um, maybe you can uh, realize that you have found it before and had it and enjoyed it as much as I do. Or maybe maybe this is all new to you and it's something that you can look forward to uh, at the next chance you get through a little pastry shop. But either way, we're going to make this as interesting as possible. This is a story that goes over hundreds of years. It involves convents, nuns, prostitutes, decrees of the Council of State given to Versailles, the French Revolution corporations arguing, does your current favorite pastry have any of these things? I doubt it. But we're going to talk about all of these things as they relate to the cannelé and why this is interesting, not to mention something that you should know about, okay? You just want to know about this uh, to add to your repertoire of things that make you the dopest person that you know, in addition to being delicious. 
So not all things are for everyone. Okay. Some of you are chocoholics and, you know, happiness for you is something like a, a double chocolate, molten lava, whatever the hell, you know, uh, other folks, it's fruit pies or cakes or, um, uh, other people can't live without ice cream and gelato. Okay. And that's all fine. All of those things have their place. Uh, but if you're like me, perfection comes in the details. Uh, a sugar bomb is, is kind of a waste of time for me um, because I don't prefer things that are overly sweet uh, or elaborate. So m- my go-to dessert, for example, is creme brulee. All right. The, it's a perfect balance of sweet. It's a little fancy. It's delicious. Uh, and the portions usually are not too large. Okay. And so for me, that that's it. That's where the money is. If we're talking about dessert, you know, and if you did the chocolate right the first time, do you really need to double the chocolate and then cover it with more chocolate and then, you know, drizzle it with fudge? Eh, no. Um, but obliterating taste buds, that's not my game. Okay. Uh, and whatever meal you had beforehand, uh, you know, it's just may it rest in peace because you, there's no way you can even remember that when you, you slam your, your taste buds so aggressively with something so elaborate, but, and not to mention that puts you on the HOV lane to diabetes and poor health. Uh, you know, but anyway, I'm not here to, to lecture you on, on dessert citation. I'm here to talk to you about a pastry that is not just any pastry, but a lion amongst the pastries. Um, it's regal, it's nuanced, it's historic, and it's simply delicious. And as I mentioned, creme brulee for dessert, uh, is kind of my go-to. And this pastry, this cannelé, not not really a dessert. Okay, it's 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 versatile. Uh, you can have it as a dessert, uh, but it's it's just as functional uh, in the morning with breakfast. Uh, you know, if you were going to get some kind of other pastries or, or uh, cookies, cakes, things like that, muffins, uh, this is a great substitute for that. You can also go middle of the day with this, and it's equally as versatile going from breakfast or midday or after dinner. Uh, and whether it's with coffee or tea, um, or even later with wine and what other wine than Bordeaux wine, of course. So, uh, there is a time and a place for everything. And what we're talking about is a place for Canelay. And it's probably, it's probably a natural, uh, progression, you know, given that I do like creme brulee, that I also love Canelay because there's lots of similarities here. In fact, um, creme brulee, of course, has a, a kind of a crunchy top shell that's caramelized sugar on the top. And then underneath, you have this soft custard, uh, underneath. Well, the cannelay, uh, is very, very similar, except that, uh, it's shaped in such a way it's handheld. Okay. If you've seen this, and by the way, you can go over to justblacktalking.com for visual images of what cannelay look like inside and out. Uh, but to quickly describe this for you, this is about a two-inch dark brown, narrow-looking dome, okay, um, with little columns that run down the side. It's fluted. Uh, so it's it's a very impressive-looking little treat. Uh, but it's it's small, and I'm I'm comparing it to creme brulee because it has a lot of the same components, not to mention the almost identical ingredients. Uh it's dark brown, which is part of its confusion, I think, for people who see it and aren't familiar with it because they believe that it's chocolate when it's not. It looks like chocolate. It looks like a little chocolate cake, uh, but that's really just caramelized 
exterior, which is crunchy. Uh, and then you have, when you bite into this, an interior custard, which is, which is a, a texture change very similar to the texture change that you have in a creme brulee. Okay. But the ingredients here are very basic. We're talking about, uh, butter and sugar and flour, uh, vanilla, rum. Uh, so very much, uh, similar to a creme brulee custard or any other basic traditional vanilla custard. Those are the flavorings here. Um, and so I think it's probably a natural progression that I like both of those desserts because they're essentially uh, variations of one another uh, in, a, in a sense. But let's talk a little bit about history uh, and origin here. And uh, let's start a little bit with the area, the city and the region of Bordeaux, France. Um, it, most of us are aware of Bordeaux. When we hear Bordeaux, we're either going to think of one or two things, really. Uh, wine and uh, maybe perhaps the color uh, Bordeaux is one of those uh, strange words where there's a color named after it uh, for the for the alcohol for the wine, uh, and so Bordeaux is kind of that burgundy red color, of course. Uh, but for the most part, when we hear Bordeaux, we think wine, and there's good reason. Uh, Bordeaux, which is located in the southwest uh, region of France, uh, coming up on the Atlantic coast of France, Bordeaux is France's largest wine producing region and it's home to in addition to you know everyday table wine so to speak but some of the highest quality wines found anywhere in the world and uh, there's red and white uh, wines that are produced in this region but the wine producing history is relevant and we'll come back to that in just a little bit but it's relevant to the making of Canelet. And so a little bit of the origin story here. There is a lot of controversy here because uh, there's really no the records. So we're trying to piece this together through history and legend and tales and uh but but it's it's a bit fascinating actually. I mean, we're talking about pastry and and fascinating, but yeah, follow me with this. So uh let's go to a, another town, uh Limoges. Um and, and there was a food there and Limoges is, is a little bit northeast of of um of Bordeaux. But they had a food there called a canole. And and this was a bread with flour and egg yolks. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna get a little bit geeky here on, on ingredients, but but it's 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 worth it. Um so flour and egg yolks and they and they would make this uh and eventually this kind of canole made its way to the Bordeaux region and uh, has been sold and eaten there, you know, since the 18th century, since the 1700s, for sure. That part we can, we can verify. Uh, but these were very popular little treats. And the, the makers of these canole, uh, they actually were so plentiful that th- these artisans were known as canoliers. Okay. Uh, they were the people who made the canoles and they specialized in baking them. And, uh, in classic French fashion, they organized and registered as a corporation. Uh, they're really into bureaucracy here. This is, you know, to modern day France, this is a part of French culture and society. Okay. But, uh, they registered their corporation with the Parliament of Bordeaux. Okay. And that was back in 1663. Okay. So 17th century France, they've registered these canoliers making these flour and egg yolk, uh, breads. Okay. Um, but, Regulations limited them where they could only make several foods. 
They made blessed bread, which, you know, the Catholics out there will have some uh, familiarity with. They made these canoles and they made something else called a uh, retortion, um, which we're not going to talk about. But they were not a part of the pastry corporation. Okay. There was a whole nother guild or organization of pastry chefs and the pastry corporation. They had monopoly over using, uh, mixione dough. Okay. This is baking with milk and sugar. So milk and sugar, um, doughs were prohibited from these cannoliers. Okay. Cannoliers were using flour and egg yolks, but they couldn't add the good stuff. All right. The milk and the sugar, they couldn't add because it was um, regulated. Uh, it was a part of another corporation. All right. So they were prohibited from using these things. So, look, the cannoliers weren't just going to sit on it. They they fought this. All right. They fought the pastry chef corporation. Uh, they fought those privileges. And this was a big fight. This went all the way to Council of State in Versailles. OK. And they made a ruling in 1755. All right. So we went from the registering a corporation of the Connoliers in 1663. Now, almost a hundred years later in 1755, the state in Versailles rules in their favor and ended the pastry chef's monopoly being able to use dough, including milk and sugar. So now it's game on. All right. These cannolis, they can start to add milk and sugar to their little breads with the flour and the egg yolks. All right. So uh, this I mean, this is this is legal. This is uh, regulatory. It's heavily entrenched in, in, you know, bureaucracy. It really is. And in 1767, they even started to limit how many of these cannolis shops could be in a city. They said no more than eight. You can only have eight of these little bakeries in a city. Um, and there were very strict requirements for who could join the profession. And, you know, this was, this was big deal and kind of big business at the time. But a little bit later, 1785, there's over 30 of these shops in Bordeaux. Okay. Uh, alone. And so kind of violating these limitations that were, that were put there. All right. Now, eventually something called the French Revolution happens. Okay. All right. We, we've heard about that, but dig this. The French Revolution, as a result, they abolished all corporations. Wrap your head around that. Corporations are abolished as part of the French Revolution. I mean, when the French do something, they go all in, okay? And and so this was a big deal for this to have happened. And so even though the corporations were abolished, the shops, the cannoliers were still up and running, okay? These things were so... Uh, integral into the society, the culture, and then with such high demand that the shops were still going, even in full terror, full French Revolution. And so a lot of the roles, the paperwork, the census, things were burned and destroyed. Uh, and so we really don't have good record keeping uh, in and around that time period. And as a result, it's difficult to really say uh, when exactly the version of canole or or canelay that we've come to know now, when it really evolved from uh, its seeming origins of a bread, okay, that was just with flour and eggs, through its transformation to include milk and sugar, to further iterations that added vanilla. And of course, some genius along the way decided, you know what, rum is going to make this better because rum makes just about everything better. 
But we have to, again, keep some context. Where is this occurring? This is in Bordeaux. Bordeaux, in addition to being the uh, massive wine-producing region, and, and we will come back to that in just a second, it's a port city. And it's a major port city. So all of the spoils of the New World are coming in and out of this area. That includes vanilla, for example. This is a new thing coming in from from travel uh, around the world. Sugar, of course, and all of its byproducts, most importantly, rum. Let's take a little deviation here for just a moment. Um, a little of the, the backstory or... Uh, let's say the black story of Bordeaux as a city and port city. Um, and this is not something I want to get into now. We'll probably have to talk about this in a whole nother episode, but Bordeaux was the second largest port involved in slave trading. Okay. It's not just sugar and vanilla coming in and out of there. There's of course slaves going in and out of there. And it's the second largest slave port in France, uh, during uh, the 17th and, and 19th centuries. Okay. And, uh, those cities involved in that, uh, particularly in Bordeaux, they are publicly making some, uh, reckonings, acknowledging their role in their slave trading history. That's something that's going on currently. And we'll discuss that at another time, but back to our sweet treats, these Canelais coming in and out of those ports, sugar, obviously from, uh, I mean, sugar is, inextricably tied to uh the new world to slavery okay that was one of the the great imports uh that changed the world and continued to fuel and drive the slave trade was uh the the market the desire the taste for sugar but anyhow back to our candlelight we've got our imports coming in and out there we're talking about vanilla sugar rum so now let's talk a little bit about how this wine producing region corresponds and factors in to our ingredients. So in winemaking or vinification, there's an important step in the process called fining. Okay. And fining is where we're removing and clarifying the wine. In filtering wine, that's a little bit different. You're taking out, uh, particles, uh, larger insoluble things like grape fragments. You're removing those from the wine, okay? But fining, we're taking out the soluble components that you can't see, things like tannins or other undesirable things, things that people who make wine would know a lot more about. But the point is, this is a important step in winemaking, and one of the traditional agents for fining is egg whites. So we're in this massive wine-producing region. We're making all of this wine. One of the steps of making wine is fining, which uses egg whites to help clarify our wine. And this is seen in cooking as well. When making a consommé, a clarified soup, egg whites are used to take out some of the sediment uh, and fat to make that a clear soup. So we're in a massive wine-producing region that is as a byproduct, producing lots of egg yolk. So let's go ahead and insert some more controversy here about the origin story. There's a famous convent in Bordeaux, the Couvent des Annonciades, okay? And 
it still remains in part uh, as a, a protected historical building uh, to this day, but it's gone through some iterations over the years. Uh, it went from uh, being the convent uh, to um, being uh, the House of Mercy, um, the La Miséricorde. Um, and this was a place for essentially former prostitutes to come and be rehabilitated uh, and housed there. Ultimately, the building has come into its current usage, which is uh, to house several different administrative, government administrative buildings. And currently, it's actually the home of the cultural ministry in Bordeaux right now. So it's a it's a uh, administrative building right now. But you can go and tour the area and see the place in question here. Nonetheless, one of the origin stories for Candelay is that these pastries originated in the Couvent des Annonciades. And there, the nuns at this convent would use discarded egg yolks from the local winemakers, as we just discussed, and they would make these cannelets. Now, that's a popular prevailing theory or tale, uh, as this has become, you know, legends of, of different types. However, there's a little bit uh, called into question with that. There was a recent archaeological excavation of this convent, and they found no evidence of any of the uh, equipment, the cooking uh, utensils, records, or anything that would suggest that uh, these cannelets were made there. But nonetheless, that's a theory. Another uh, theory that's popular is that local people there in the uh, surrounding area around the ports of Bordeaux would use spilled flour from the docks and whip up little treats for poor children in the area. They'd fit them into the molds, these little copper individual muffin tins almost. Uh, that's what the cannelay are cooked in, and they would stick them into hot embers and, and bake them that way and then serve them up to the uh, children that were, you know, hungry and running around the area. So there's no way to really know which of these has any uh, truth to them. Uh, so just choose whichever variation of this makes you feel warm inside, I guess. But what we do know is that as popular as these were, popular enough to withstand the French Revolution, at some point they were virtually forgotten. And so it's really through the late 1900s that Canelet start becoming popular again. And you're starting to see them all throughout uh, French bakeries, and you're getting variations. You're getting variations in size. You're even getting variations in flavorings with chocolate or uh, orange or different toppings added after it's been prepared. And this popularity doesn't go over so well in Bordeaux. And so in 1985, something very French happens where a group of bakers, a group of these pastry chefs get together and they form a brotherhood. They're there to protect, distinguish, differentiate what they're claiming and calling their original preparation and recipe and styling and distinguishing that from the imposters that are out there. Okay. So in 1985, the Confrérie du Canelet de Bordeaux decides some specifics. 
The correct mold, this copper mold, has to hold three ounces. They then go into secrecy about the actual recipe and ingredients and the method. So all of these things are open for debate and argument. Uh, do you go at a high temperature for how long? Um, what should the final product really look like? Because these things can vary depending on how they're, they're cooked. So one of the major things that is accomplished by this, this brotherhood being formed in 1985 is that they essentially brand the spelling of a canelet. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this, C-A-N-E-L-E with an accent, that is the official brotherhood's spelling. Now, outside of Bordeaux, you'll see two N's in the spelling, and it's referred to as a canelet bordelais. That's what all of us have to use in our uh, naming of this outside of Bordeaux. It's very similar to champagne being proprietary and branded in the same way. The champagne that we're making anywhere else is sparkling wine. And so whether it's here in California or it's over in Italy or Spain uh, with Proseccos or other sparkling wines, there's only one champagne. And similar, there's only one Canelet de Bordeaux. That said, these are a bit tricky to make. Even though the ingredients are very simple and we're really baking them, uh, it can be a little tricky to get these done properly. Okay. The appeal in a lot of ways to a canelet is the contrast in textures. All right. I've mentioned before, the outside is this deeply caramelized, dark brown, almost black looking exterior. Okay. And in the mold, the argument rages as to what to coat the inside of the mold with. And there's one way, there's a traditional way to do this, which uses uh, a white oil, which is a combination of clarified butter and melted beeswax. That melted beeswax gives just a slight honey note to that deep caramelized exterior. So you have this contrast of this somewhat bittersweet, crunchy outside with just a touch of a honey sweetness to it. And then Inside, you've got this bright, butter-colored, airy custard, almost like a batter that you would use to make crepes, for example. There's argument over whether the batter has to be rested for a period of time before you bake it. And of course, as I mentioned, there's discussion over the variation in size that you do this in. So officially, two and a quarter inches in diameter, two inches tall. That's what we're looking for. Baked in this hot oven for one up to two hours at times. As it bakes, it rises almost like a souffle above the upper rim of the mold. And then it sinks back down into the bottom. If it doesn't sink back down properly and touch the bottom of the mold, it won't caramelize at the bottom. When this is finished cooking, you're going to flip it over, okay? Just like you would do a cake pan. You take your cake and you flip it over so what was the bottom is now the top. If during the cooking process, the cannelade did not sink fully back down, when you flip it, the top won't be as darkly caramelized as the rest of the sides. And it'll look white. And that's been referred to as having a white ass. It's not a problem, and it's often seen because these are not uniformly produced things. These are artisanal 
pastries. So you'll see some that have various, uh, or I should say variations in coloration from deeply black, uh, to a little bit lighter on some of the top. Now, what's remarkable about this is that this contrast in texture, it's short lived. When these are cooked, they need to cool adequately. You need a, a good amount of time, maybe an hour to cool them fully, and they crisp up nicely on the outside. But after a few hours, five, six hours, they lose that crunch. And this is why if you find them at your local bakery or pastry shop, they're made in limited quantity because they're, they're not well suited to be leftovers. Okay. If we make those in the morning, by afternoon, they're losing their crunch. And while the flavors will still taste the same, you've lost a lot of the magic, which makes this what it is, which is that texture contrast, that crunch on the outside and that custard on the inside. And so perhaps you're starting to see all of these potential variations that can be made here. And it really imparts to the specific baker um, how their cannelay are going to look and taste based on how they've maneuvered and, and played around with some of these, these cooking times, how long did they rest their batter to impart the flavors in there. Um, and so it's really uh, an artisanal product. Okay. Now that said, these are excellent anywhere that you can find them. Just like uh, French bread, for example, tastes different there. Uh, your ingredients will change how these taste around the world, but that does not at all diminish their popularity around the world. And wherever you are, if you do a quick search, I'm sure that you'll find somewhere near you that offers these. Now, as you go in with some of this information, you may now be able to determine whether or not uh, they're adhering to some of the traditional techniques of making this. And, you know, one of the quick um, sources of argument is to not use the expensive copper mold for this. Okay. Each copper mold, these little two inch molds, they're about $30. Okay. So if you're making a half dozen of those, you can see this is an expensive adventure. Um, and so there are silicone molds that are out there, but many people will tell you, you can't truly make a proper cantalay and get the kind of caramelized exterior that you need in the silicone mold. But hey, it's a lot cheaper and you get close enough. So depending on what you're trying to do, uh, you'll still have something delicious, but maybe just not as uh, close to the authentic Candelay de Bordeaux. So let's recap a little bit here, because this is a pastry with a lot going on, okay? Uh, historically, controversially, legislatively. Okay. So we, we started, we believe in Limoges with a canole, which was basically a bread with flour and egg yolks. And this canole was very popular and made its way into the Bordeaux region, uh, and was modified. It was modified after a legal battle between canoliers, who, who were special artisans making these canoles and pastry chefs who had a monopoly on the ability to use mixed dough with milk and sugar. So this made it all the way up to Versailles in 1755, where there was a decree made of the Council of State. And this decree 
gave victory to the cannoliers over the pastry chefs, allowing them to use the mixed dough and add sugar and milk to their mixtures. We went through regulatory limits on how many shops could be in a city. We went through the whole French Revolution. We lost history. We lost documents and recipes. We have a resurgence of these recipes that become widely popular. And then we have a brotherhood of pastry chefs in Bordeaux that unify and establish a new guild, so to speak, in which they successfully determine a new appellation or naming the Canelet with one N gets registered at the National Institute of Industrial Property by the Brotherhood, by this guild of pastry chefs. And whether it's the official Canelet de Bordeaux or Canelet Bordelais, they become widely popular all over the world. And today, whether it's throughout France, whether it's New York, Los Angeles, Japan, Canelet can be found almost everywhere. And so it's your job to go out and find Canelet for yourself. Okay, you deserve it. You deserve a pastry with this history. You deserve a pastry with this much passion and fighting about it. You deserve a pastry with connections to a convent that then became my house of mercy for prostitutes. You deserve to walk in and find out if your pastry for the day has a white ass. So go out, find Canelet, enjoy them. Take pride that now when you look at these bizarre little delights mixed in amongst the muffins and the croissant, that you know the story, the history. And you know that you're eating a pastry with roots that go back over 300 years. And enjoy yourself. So whether it's with your morning coffee or a glass of Bordeaux wine, enjoy your Canelet or two. If you go over to JustBlackTalking.com, you'll be able to see visually what these look like. You'll be able to see, as I've made my own at home, uh, stages throughout that process, uh, some photos of that, and also uh, much of what we've talked about here written out to read if you're interested. Well, that's it. Our inaugural episode of Just Black Talking, where we discussed Candelaide de Bordeaux. It's over. In the bag. In the copper mold. So, check me out. JustBlackTalking.com Also, Just Black Talking on Instagram. Uh, and I'll keep you posted as we continue to get more content developed and available for you. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe. Come back and listen to us. We'll have more episodes of things you didn't see coming. Thank you. And we'll talk again next time on Just Black Talking.